This is episode 496 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In John 14, Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit to his disciples, and he makes this statement. Listen carefully. And I will pray, or ask, the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Then he describes the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is John 14, verses 16 through 18. In the statement about the Holy Spirit, Jesus makes a distinction between the lost world and those that are saved, those he will redeem, the chosen, the children of God. And this distinction is the ability to both see and know the Holy Spirit. The word translated know is gnosko, and it does not mean to know like in a cognitive sense, such as I know George Washington was the first president of the United States. It is not mental. It's not factual. It's not academic knowledge only. To know gnosko, as Jesus said we would know the Holy Spirit, is an intimate knowledge, such as Adam knew his wife Eve, and Joseph did not know his wife Mary until she had brought forth their firstborn son. The word gnosko also means to know by experience, to know completely, and to know and place one's favor and acceptance upon. It is a powerful word that reveals more about parents knowing their child than a student knowing the answer to Friday's pop quiz. And this is how Jesus said we are to know and do know the Holy Spirit. So the question is this, do you know the Holy Spirit that way? And if not, is it even possible to know the Holy Spirit in this intimate sort of way? I think you'll find the answer will surprise you. In this message, we will begin to unpack these truths in order to inspire you to make it your aim to be well-pleasing to Him by aspiring to the higher Christian life found only by an intimate knowledge of the Holy Spirit and received by faith. So join with us as we discover more about this higher Christian life as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. One of the problems that we have when it comes to embracing something that seems strange to us, uh, this higher Christian life, is the terminology. It's, it's words that have been perverted. It's words that have been taken away and used for something else. And we find those words used in what we're seeking for. We feel com- uncomfortable because we associate those words with maybe a negative experience. Uh, That's why the examples that I've given you, none of them are contemporary. None of them are the guy that lives down the street. They are all examples from people we all know. They're examples from people we've respected our entire Christian life, from D.L. Moody and from Spurgeon and Oswald Chambers, my utmost for as high as Andrew Murray and the great devotional writings he did and so many others. So we don't fall prey to these words that have a tendency of, of meaning something biblically, that we have let our culture make them mean something else. For example, keep using this example, 1934, Academy Award-winning movie, The Gay Divorcee. It was a musical with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And we see that, that movie today, and we go, this, this isn't a homosexual movie. This has nothing to do with the gay agenda or why he got divorced. The word gay back then meant happy-go-lucky and, and you know, just a, a carefree kind of person. And it was a word that had been used in the English language since its inception to mean that until recently. And what's happened is because that word now has taken on a different meaning, we're scared to death of ever using it. And nobody ever remembers what the original intention of that word is. Well, I, uh, I wasn't around in 1934. I don't really remember the movie. I don't particularly like Ginger Rogers and uh, Fred Astaire. And so can you give me something that relates to me a little bit more? Okay, for those of you my age, how about the Flintstones? You remember them? 
Yeah, well, the Flintstones was a, was a television show that I grew up on. It ran from 1960 to 1966. It was a kind of a, 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 a cartoon version of the Honeymooners with Art Carney and Jackie Gleason, if you remember that. And you've got Fred and Barney and Wilma and Betty and Bam Bam and Pebbles. Do you remember all that? Do you remember the theme song? Here's a theme song. Flintstones. Meet the Flintstones. They're a modern Stone Age family. Bum, bum. Remember that? From the town of Bedrock, they're a page right out of history. Let's ride with the family down the street through the courtesy of Fred's two feet. When you're with the Flintstones, have a yabba-dabba-doo time, a dabba-doo time. Let's have a gay old time. I'd really rather not. I don't even want to. I don't even want to watch that anymore. Now I'm thinking, what kind of relationship did Fred and Barney have? You know, and, and everything changed. I mean, this is just in the '60s. And I even did. I even looked this the Flintstones up to find these lyrics, and I saw a review of the Flintstones, and the review of the Flintstones even used the word gaiety. That you know, they. they it was a wonderful show talking about the gaiety of just family life and friendship and all that kind of stuff. We don't ever touch those things anymore because for some reason we associate that with something sinister, something evil, something bad, and we have removed it from our vocabulary as not to be misunderstood. How about that word? Karen, when we're getting, she's working on the songs this week, Karen actually asked me, is it okay if we sing this song, the last one we sang, because it has the word favor? in there. And when you think of favor, you think of Joel Osteen. You think of, it's always God's favor. And God's favor, according to Joel Osteen and those people of that theological bent, is that if you read his book, I think it's on page 28, where he talks about how the favor of God will, will overwhelm you in his, your best life now. He talks about the fact that when you go to a restaurant, seriously, it's really in it. You go to a restaurant that because you have God's favor, the, the, People there will seat you before everybody else who's standing in line longer. Because that's why Christ died. So you can have that kind of favor. And because that word is so twisted, we're even afraid to use it. And it's a biblical word. It's a biblical word that talks about the blessings of God. And the song that we sang really does a, a very good job of communicating biblical favor. His presence go before you and behind you and with you and all around you. And that's really what God's favor means. But we're afraid to use that because of how it's been twisted. We're afraid of the abundant life. Because right now, if you Google the abundant life or you talk to popular pastors about the abundant life, all the abundant life they're talking about is money and cars and health and long life on this earth. Like it's still your best life now. Nobody talks about the abundant life bearing on them, like Paul said, the brand marks, the scars possibly of your relationship with Christ. Nobody talks about counting it worthy to be found, kind of a blessing to be found worthy to suffer like our Lord. We don't want to talk about the abundant life. Good night. We never want to talk about being filled by the Holy Spirit, although we don't feel as uncomfortable as we do with that until we get to this word baptized in the Holy Spirit. Oh my gosh, that means we're going to be like all these Benny Hinn people where they lay hands on us and we fall down and we twitch. And if you're a woman, somebody lays a blanket over you, you know, your dress or something and, and just crazy stuff. And, and we, don't, we don't want any of that because we know people who claim to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I don't want that. Do you? But it's a biblical term. It's a biblical term. John the Baptist introduced that. Here's what Jesus will do. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Acts 2 talks about baptism in the Holy Spirit. The word is found all through Scripture, but we have eradicated it from our mind because our culture has redefined that. The same thing happens with this phrase, the higher Christian life. If there's something more to Christ than I'm experiencing, then it means one of two things. It means there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with him. If there's something wrong with me that I'm living a life that doesn't measure up to maybe the fullness that I should be with Christ, being complete in him, then I need to change that. But I don't want to change that 
because the cost is too great and it'll make me a fanatic and I won't be able to watch Ozark at night and and all that kind of stuff. So I I don't want to do that. So therefore, it can't be me because we live in the Laodicean narcissistic church age. It can never be me. So it has to be you. So God, there's, there's a reason why none of us are living, praise that, none of the people I know are living this abundant life in Christ like we see in the book of Acts. And the reason is because I know what it is. You don't do that anymore, God. You quit doing that. You showed us the book of Acts to make us all hunger for that and then said, nope, you can't do that because we're going to twist the, the scripture in 1 Corinthians to make us feel like all those things are passed away with. There's no longer any five-fold ministry anymore. Apophets, prophets, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. We're going to dump those two. There's only a 60% ministry today. Why would you do that, God? I mean, where did that come from, God? And if you'll search it, the, the beginning of that, it all boils down to the fact that we don't want to think maybe, maybe there's something that we need to change. Instead, we're going to push this all on God. I have, um, I have been studying this for decades. I have experienced this much shorter time than that. And I'm telling you, the key to experiencing a spiritual life that you know is available, that you know there's more to it than what you've got, then the key to that is first a desire and then counting the cost and then an abject commitment. And we, most people, I did for decades, failed at those two. I had a desire, but not a desire strong enough to push me through to the end. I, had a, uh, I made a commitment, but not a commitment that was life and death. It was a commitment that, eh, kind of today and, and not today. It's a commitment that, I, you know, God, I made this commitment to you like the very verse Justice shared with you. I made a vow, but I'm breaking my vow, and you're just going to have to deal with it because you're a nice, loving, wonderful God, and I'm going to rock on with my life like it's nothing. I want to share some truth with you because until that desire is there, a deep desire based on what you understand the truth to be, nothing will change. And we don't have decades anymore or years anymore. This is the best way to prepare spiritually for whatever God has for you is to elevate your relationship with him to a point that you're closer to him than you ever have been today and you eclipse that tomorrow and you're looking forward to eclipsing that again the next day. You have to answer these questions yourself. Is there more to the Christian life than you're currently experiencing or is it this it for you? I mean, this, it doesn't get any better than this. If, if we thought that it was no better than it is right now, we'd be telling everybody about the Lord Jesus Christ because this is great. This is wonderful. I can't wait to share this with you. But we hardly tell anybody about him because our life is up and down and up and down and in and out and happy days and bad days. And we have these still same besetting sins and we try to do better, but we don't do better. I just can't control my tongue. I can't control my thought life. I can't control the bad habits I brought in before I was saved. I can't control my temper. I really haven't changed that much this way. I mean, I used to be dark and black and live in the night, but now I'm, well, I'm not in the light. I'm, I'm kind of in the gray area. I'm kind of lukewarm. I'm kind of not hot and not cold. And I don't want to share that with somebody. I don't want to share with them my struggle. I want to share with them from a point of victory to have that overcomer kind of life that Jesus talked about. But since I don't, I'll just kind of go through the motions. Christianity will just be something I add to my life, and I'll come to church when I you know, need to, but the rest of the life, that time belongs to me. If, if, if you're not a 10 and going on, you know that there's more to this Christian life that you're going through. The problem is we don't know anybody like that. I mean, if we did, we would hang around them all the time. We would, there's, not, there's not a revival going on like the first, second, or third great awakening or these small revivals like they had in South Africa that, that 
Andrew Murray was part of, and the revivals of the last century that took place in England and Scotland. There's none of those going on right now. We're just kind of limping towards oblivion here. But if there was a revival, we would go there, and we would learn from them, and we'd watch it on YouTube or whatever, and, and, but, but there's not. We don't, we don't know anybody who lives that way. We do know some people who claim to live that way. Oh, yes, I'm a spiritual believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I remember when I got slain in the spirit at some thing, and I started speaking in tongues, and, and since then, it's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, but your life is terrible. I mean, I can't trust you. You're very emotional. You get angry all the time. I mean, there's really no difference between me and you, except I don't even like hanging around you. And it's not because of your spirituality. It's because of your arrogance, because claiming to have something that nobody else has, and you don't even live a life that exemplifies even some of the other Christians that I know. And so therefore, I'm discouraged. I I don't know what to do, except maybe it's not real. Maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe maybe I'm okay just being a six or a seven or an eight and limping towards heaven. And when I get there, it'll be, well, not well done, but yeah, you know, it's good to see you this month. You know? How do we move beyond that? In order to be firmly convinced, I'm going to share with you a lot of scriptures. Matter of fact, this week, uh, it was this morning I was thinking about what I needed to share weekly. And it was like God because just told me, he gave me the five verses. You need to unpack each of these five verses that basically deal with desire. Yes, start that, uh, start that tomorrow. But I want to share two other verses that we're not going to talk about next week. Familiar verses that will maybe help you understand what is possible, what he has presented to us that is ours for the taking. And as you look at these verses, I want you to ask yourself, what do they mean? What do they really mean to me? The first one, of course, is found in John chapter 14. You remember the context? Jesus begins that chapter by telling these people that he's going to heaven to prepare a place for them. So these are saved guys. These are not lost people who, when they receive the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, became born again. He's already promised them that he's preparing a place for them in heaven. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. Philip goes, well, Lord, just show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Either believe that or believe me based on the works that I do. Okay. Okay. But what about these works? Well, verse 12. I say to you that he who believes in me, the works that I do that authenticate my Godship, greater works than these you will do because I go to the Father. Wait a second. What happens when you go to the Father? It's really simple. I will physically take myself out of your presence so you no longer have to be with me. In other words, I'm always outside of you. I'm always next to you. I'm always around you. And if I hit a mile down the road, I'm not with you at all until you come to where I am. I'm removing myself away from this physical domain, and I will send you someone else, the Holy Spirit, who will equip you for power, with power to do ministry. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Who is that? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. We have looked at this verse before, but I want to just point out just a couple words here. Jesus says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another. We spent a lot of time on this word, the difference between alos and heteros. Alos means another of the same kind, an exact copy, an exact replica. Heteros means like heterosexual, and heteros means another of a different kind. It means like the example I gave, I'm going to get another truck. I have a 2014 Ford F-150 Ego Boost, well, I don't even know how many miles it is. 
And so I'm going to get me another truck. It doesn't have to be a, an F-150. It doesn't have to be a, um, a Ford. It doesn't have to have the same mileage or the same color. But it's another truck like the one I'm replacing. It's a truck of a different kind. It's a heteros. But here, it's identical. I'm going to replace it with something that's got every ding, every scratch, the same mileage, Everything about this truck is just like the truck I'm getting, so much so that I can't even tell the difference. Jesus is saying, I'm going to send to you me, because we're part of the Godhead. There is, if you remember when we talked about the Trinity, the Trinity eternally exists in three separate persons. Each of those persons, number two, is fully God, and there is one God. We'll deal with that when we see Jesus. And so we've got, we've got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is one God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. What's the Father like? He's like me. Well, what's the Son? Or what's the, uh, the Holy Spirit like? I'm sending you someone just like me, who is just like the Father, an alos to live in you, another helper, one that comes alongside a paraclete, a comforter, an encourager, that this part this part of the Godhead, this God himself will abide, wonderful word. He will live, he will dwell, he will make his home with you forever, forever. You will never be separated from me, Jesus says. I'm about to be taken up into heaven. I'm about to be removed from your midst. And once I'm gone, you'll not see me anymore, but I'm gonna send someone else that will be with you forever. And once that happens, you will be able to do greater works than I'm even doing because the power, the person of the Holy Spirit, God himself will be in you. And then in a wonderful explanation of the Holy Spirit, Jesus begins to describe who he's talking about. He calls him the spirit of truth. He says, listen, you receive him, but the world can't. world cannot receive him, but you can because the world neither sees him nor gnoscos him. The world does not know him by experience. The world does not know him intimately. The world does not have the favor of God placed upon them. The world does not know him by experience. He's just something out there. But you know him. Really? Yes. You know the Holy Spirit. You've experienced the Holy Spirit. You have an intimate, passionate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Well, how? Because he dwells with you. Currently, I'm here, Jesus says. In the future, he will be in you. Find that in Acts chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 1, and that's what we're experiencing right now. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will in the future come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Got this verse? The world does not gnosko him, but you gnosko him. You know him. Because he dwells with you, in you, and Jesus says, because I'm sending him, you will not be orphans. It'll be just like I'm with you. So Steve, do you gnosko the Holy Spirit? Oh, uh, well, uh, um, I, 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 know, I know who the Holy Spirit is. No, no, we're not, not talking about who the Holy Spirit is. We're not talking about the theological answer. That's not what gnosko means. That's what Edo means, 1492. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is, do you know him experientially? Does he thrive in you? Does he empower you? Do you know him? Do you know him as well as you know the Son? Do you know him as well as you know the Father? Well, um, uh, you know, um, the, the Holy Spirit, he is the, uh, he's the third person of the Trinity. No, no, that's a mistake we've all made. Because when we talk about the third person, in our mind we have a pecking order. God the Father, he's number one. And God the Son, he's number two, because sons are subordinate to the Father. And God the Spirit, he's just a force or a power that's sent out from number one or number two to do the bidding of number one and number two. So I'm praying for the power of number three coming from number two, or in the name of number two, coming from number one. When we pray, we always pray to the Father. 
Sometimes we try to pray to the Son. Now, who prays to the Spirit? Well, the, the Father is in heaven on his throne. And the Son is seated next to the Father, interceding for us day in and day out. And the Son, I mean, the, the Spirit is the one that lives in us. The Spirit quickens the words to it. The Spirit answers our prayers. The Spirit empowers us for service. The Spirit does all the heavy lifting here on earth, and we ignore him. We have nothing to do with him because we don't understand. He's the third person of the Trinity. No, he is fully God. He is just as powerful, just as much God, just as much worthy of respect as God the Father and God the Son. We just don't make movies and miniseries out of the Spirit. I don't even know what he's like. He's, you know, Jesus described him as the wind in John chapter 3. How does that work? Do you know the Holy Spirit? I was reading some accounts. People asked this very question. And um, one account is from a man I'm going to tell you about at the very end, uh, Walter Wilson, Dr. Walter Wilson. This very question was asked him, and his response was, I don't know him at all. Very diligent zealous, hardworking Christian man. I don't know him at all. Matter of fact, he really means nothing to me. If I, if I want something done, I, I pray to the Father in the name of the Son and ask the Spirit to grant their wishes by giving me power. He's some sort of inanimate object. And Jesus said that it's better for us that Jesus goes to heaven so we can no longer see him or touch him because he's going to send us someone that we're to gnosko as much as we gnosko the Father and the Son. And by and large, most Christians don't. We've been taught, well, you can never pray to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because if you do, you'll start doing loopy stuff like speaking in tongues and casting out demons and doing all that fake stuff that we never want to do. Or if you pray to the Holy Spirit, it's like reading the book of Revelation. It'll make you crazy, make you insane. Or if we pray to the Holy Spirit, that somehow we're devaluing Jesus or the Father. You ever heard this? Holy Spirit never brings glory to himself. He always brings glory to the Father and the Son, which is true. Therefore, we should do the same thing. But he is equally God. More so, he's the guy, he's the part of the Godhead that lives and functions in us. We're to have a closer relationship with the Holy Spirit then we are God the Father. God the Father is out there. Jesus is sitting next to the Father out there. The Holy Spirit is right here. Right. Isn't that amazing? One more passage. Very familiar passage. One I've struggled with my whole Christian life. It is a clear command, and it's so hard to do. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Amazing how it says that. A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I didn't really understand reasonable until I became a CPA. It's a phrase we use all the time. We look at someone's financial statements, and we're looking at the expenses, comparing them to the, um, to the income, and we're trying to determine if the expenses are reasonable, if they're logical, if they make sense based on a certain percentage. If you're doing a tax return and you, a guy made $3,000 and has you know, $1,800 in meal expenses, that's not reasonable. It doesn't take $1,800 of eating at a restaurant to make $3,000 worth of income. And so when I'm reading this, it makes sense, which is my reasonable, my logical, just naturally progressive service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or test what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Watch this word. I mean, watch this verse and especially one word in here. It says, I beg you, I urge you, beseech is not a word that we use much today, that you therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, because of what he's done in your life, because of the grace and mercy he has shown you, that you, Steve, you, that's your job, you present your body. Wow, why didn't just say myself? You present yourself. Why did I have to say bodies? It, it didn't say mind. 
It didn't say my spirit. It didn't say my soul. It didn't say my money. It just says my bodies. And I'm to present my bodies. There's a reason for that. And we're going to look at a five different passages this coming week that talk about the importance of presenting your bodies to him. And I'm supposed to present that as a living sacrifice, which God deems as holy, acceptable, which is my reasonable service. I mean, it's just reasonable. It seems logical or expected based on the mercies of God. Okay. All right. But what does it mean to present my bodies as a living sacrifice. I mean, what is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is something that you give up totally. In the Old Testament time, they would take a lamb or some sort of animal, and they would take it to the priest, and the priest would kill it, which means you're not getting it back, not going to do you any more good. They would lay it on the altar, and they would have it consumed with fire. And it's being consumed with fire. The smoke would go up into the heavens, and the idea is God would smell the sweet aroma of you taking something that you value it and totally <clears throat> presenting it to the Lord. And it's consumed, and you get nothing back out of it. You've given it because you love God that much. Or you have like a, a, a grain offering, a drink offering, and you would take this, this wine and pour it on the ground. Well, that makes no sense. Nobody gets it. Exactly because I'm sacrificing it and I'm giving it to God because it belongs to him. It's sanctified. It's set apart for him. When I lay my body down as a living sacrifice, he doesn't expect me to die as a living sacrifice. It means I take all hands off my body. It's not my lips anymore. It's not my mind anymore. It's not my desires or my wants. It's not my three or five or 10 year plan. It's not paying my house off early or going on this great vacation or working real hard for this uh, advancement or trying to be a millionaire by the time I'm 35. None of that applies anymore because this is my body now yielded to him totally. I mean, I'm done with it. It totally belongs to you. The Holy Spirit says to Paul, which is the reasonable thing to do simply because of the fact he's already redeemed you with the precious blood of his son. So when I give myself up to someone else, I mean, what does that mean? Well, it means they call all the shots. It means they are the master and we are the slaves. Remember, that's what it means. Doulos, voluntary bond slave is what we're supposed to be called in the scripture. Not a servant which is like an employee that I work 40 hours, the rest of the time is me. I mean, we work far less than that for the Lord, but anyway. Here's the question, though. Who are we presenting our bodies to? Profound question here. Are we presenting our bodies to God the Father? He doesn't need our bodies. I mean, he's, he's God. He's sitting on his throne. He's there. He's, we see him in Mount Sinai and smoke and fire and everything. We will do that. Are we presenting our bodies to the Lord Jesus Christ? He has a body. And as a matter of fact, if you look in the book of Revelation, it is possible that he will actually have that same body throughout all eternity, bearing on us the lamb as if slave, bearing on his body the sacrifices that he made for our redemption. Every time we see him, we see his love through this lamb as if slain. Well, who gets our body? Well, this is the only part of the Godhead that was specifically revealed to us is not having a body. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down to inhabit your body, to take control of you, to, be, to have you filled with him. That's when he's inside of you, like drinking a glass of water, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm filled up with the Holy Spirit. But there's also a phenomena where I am now engulfed in him. I'm now baptized in him. So he surrounds me all from the outside. So everything that happens is really all of him, which is the imagery that we're talking about here. A filling, God's empowering me from the inside. A baptism, he's engulfing me from the outside. I am submerged in him. So no one sees me anymore. They just see him. Why in the world would the Holy Spirit want to take possession of you and me? Because he wants to live his life through you. He wants to bring glory to the Father through you. 
He wants people to look at you and go, man, there's no way that can be Steve. That can only be God working through Steve. He wants you to be, he, he wants to be your hands and your feet and your mouth. And he wants to show us how great amount of fruit that we can bear for the Father's glory. But also, I believe, he wants to show us, how, to show the world how much he can bless a man or a woman who's totally consecrated to him. When D.L. Moody, again, one of my heroes, D.L. Moody first got saved and was committed to going to the ministry, he wrote something in his diary, something I had written down, I don't know, 30 years ago in an index card and carried it with me ever since. And here's what D.L. Moody said. He said, the world has not yet seen what God can do through a man and for a man that's totally consecrated to him. With God's help, I will be that man. And he was. I will be that man. And there's no difference between D.L. Moody and you and I except desire and commitment and counting the cost and allowing the Holy Spirit to take possession of us. I will talk next week as I share with you the theology behind a lot of this. It's the difference between having our spirits sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which happens, by the way, at your salvation, our deposit, our guarantee of our future inheritance to come, and having your soul, which is you, which is your personality, your mind, your will, your volition, what you want to do, having your soul sanctified and submerged in the Holy Spirit, which is something totally different. When we give ourselves to the Lord, He will use us in a way that we can't even imagine. He will use us in a way that will give our life purpose. He will use us in a way that will give us the kind of faith that, that we can move mountains, that we can trust Him for all things, and it will be, as we talk about, this higher Christian life based on the norm we have today. But what the Watchman Nee talked about is just the normal Christian life for normal Christians. We just happen to be living in our culture in a subnormal state. Make sense? Romans 12, 1. Watch this. Here's what happens when you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, give him possession of your body, give him possession of your life in a way that makes you a living sacrifice. Here's the result of that. Do not be conformed. It means to be fashion-liked or be the same pattern hourly. Don't be like this world. This is not cosmos. I never noticed this before. It is not cosmos. The word here means like the people who live in the world at a particular point in time. In other words, this word world applies to us today, right now, in the time in which we live. If this was read during D.L. Moody's time, it would say, don't be like the people of your culture. Don't be like the people who live around you at that particular point in time, at that particular nation. Don't be like everybody else that you hang around with. Don't be like the culture. Don't be, be like the culture's understanding of success or non-success. Don't fashion yourself after the people who live in the world and the time I place you in God's timetable. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, if you'll recognize that word, the Greek word, which is where we get the word metamorphosis from. Be transformed like an ugly caterpillar goes into a cocoon and comes out a beautiful butterfly that's no longer confined to walking on the dirt. But be transformed by the renewing of the way you think, the renewing of your mind. And the renewing means like a renovation. It means to take something that's broken down and renew it qualitatively better. It's like these DYI networks that shows that Karen watches all the time. I think the Galveston one is the best one where they take these homes they buy for $15,000 and they go in there and they totally gut it, totally re renovate it. And when they sell it, they sell it for like a quarter million dollars and it's absolutely beautiful. That's what it's talking about here. It's not destroying the house and building it from scratch again, although they sometimes bring it down just to the rafters and studs. But what it's talking about is, is renovate your mind into something qualitatively better. And what happens when I do? Well, then you'll be able to prove, to test, to determine what's worthy or not, what is good and acceptable 
well-pleasing, and perfect to the will of God. I do hope that you were able to listen to Friday's, last Friday's little podcast I sent out, because it talks about our desire to just find ourselves living for the same applause and adulation Jesus lived for from the Father. To, to, to live your life in such a way that God will find us well-pleasing. That's what it says here. Well, how does that happen? How do we renew our mind? Let me give you an example. All of a sudden, we wake up in the morning and we've decided, you know, my job really doesn't matter as much as I thought it did. My career, the money I have, the type of car I drive, that really doesn't matter. What really matters is how I spend time with my kids, how I spend time with my wife. What really matters is whether or not I'm, I'm going to live for his glory, to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, because I want to be eternally focused and not just worldly focused. Everything here on the world can be taken away, but I want to send up my treasures, my rewards in heaven before me that will never rust versus accumulating everything here that I'm going to leave behind when I'm gone. And, and I'm going to trust God's promises. And once I trust God's promises and he proves true to those, and I can trust him for even bigger things. Let me give you an example. These are just three. Our entertainment. I mean, we have clear play and we have pure flicks, and there may be some others, which are not pure flicks, um, VidAngel, which are software that we can basically take Hollywood movies and we can edit out um, profanity and sex scenes and uh, gratuitous violence, and we can basically edit all that stuff out and watch a movie whose theme is anything other than Christ honoring, but it's okay because we've edited all the really, really bad stuff out. When your mind is renewed, you realize, I don't even watch that stuff at all. Most Christians don't even edit the stuff out at all. They go to the movie theaters and talk about it. It's a really great movie. It has 17 F words in it. I know, but it's a really great movie. You need to see it. What is wrong with you? But we do that. Renewing your mind changes that. Our occupation. I want to be able to make as much money as possible. That's the job that I want. Was well, that the job God gave you? Is that what he wants you to do with your life? Well, I didn't ask him. I just know that, you know, I can make a lot of money doing this, this, or, or something of that nature, and, you know, to do out there and make my way in this world, because that's what I need to do is make my way in this world. Not if your mind is changed. Let me give you one that I have not talked about hardly at all. Tithing. Can't tell you the number of people, literally my whole Christian life, hardly ever preach on it. I don't know what you tithe, unless I do your tax return, and that's on you. Uh, I don't know what you tithe uh, by design. Vic, Vic handles all of that. But, uh, but let me tell you what, I, what I've heard over and over again. Oh, I can't afford to tithe. Why? Well, I, I can't because I barely have enough money just to, to make, it through the, uh, make it through the week. And so, you know, I just, God's just going to have to understand. Or it's too much money to tithe. Or fine, fine. If I'm going to tithe, I'll go ahead and give this amount of money and get him off my back. Seriously. I mean, I've heard that for years. Offshoots of that. When your mind is renewed, you know what the Scripture teaches? You know, you're not giving nothing. You don't give anything when it comes to a tithe. You're stealing from him if you don't. Malachi, will a man rob God? Well, what do you mean? It's really simple. God has decided to give you 90 cents of every dollar he provides for you. He doesn't provide that for me. I work those hours. Yeah, breathing the air that he has allowed you to breathe and a body that he hasn't racked with cancer and a car that could be wrecked on the way. Give me a break. And so, you know, God has said, all I want you to do as a sign of faithfulness is to give back to me just 10% of what I have given to you. And most Christians today are like, well, I just can't afford to give that back to God. So we steal from him. When your mind is changed and you understand that's how God views it, it changes everything, everything. Higher Christian life, listen very carefully, it is received in your life just like salvation. It's received by faith. It's not received by an experience. You may have one. It's kind of like when we read testimonies of people who um, just got saved. 
And some people say, yeah, I asked the Lord to come into my life. And, and our first response is, well, how do you feel? I don't feel anything. But I know he came into my life because I'm believing God's word for it. And the feelings will come later. Some people go, wow, I got saved. I got these warm, you know, fuzzies everywhere and goosebumps. And man, I quit drinking and doing drugs that very day. Praise the Lord for those testimonies. I didn't have one like that. But the reality is it's not an experience. God deals with everybody differently. And when it comes to embracing this higher Christian life, to putting his calling on you first, it's all appropriated in your body, in yourself by faith. And it usually, usually, always is preceded by a time of confession and repentance and asking the Lord to reveal to you, and we're going to be talking about that, I say next week, but probably the week after. What's all involved in that? It's more than just, Lord, just forgive me my sins, and then move on down the road. It's a deep-seated asking him to show you the evilness in your heart. And I will tell you from personal experience that it is a painful process to go through because a lot of the things that are evil in our heart, we have put on the bottom shelf in a bucket and pushed up under the, uh, under the ledge and don't want to deal with those anymore. And when he pries those things open and you really see in your sanctified holy self what you really like, it, it, it brings you to your knees. It may be an emotional experience. It may not be. But it takes a time to, to talk about this commitment that we have to him. But I want to close with this. We will develop these more as we go. This is probably the most important thing I want to share with you. Most of you will attempt this and fail. And you may fail for a long time. So much so that you'll quit trying. Ah, it's just not in the cards for me. It's kind of like me. When I, you know my testimony, I asked the Lord to come into my heart 200 times over a 12-year period, over a 10-year period, 200 times, various churches, pastors. I did everything they told me to do. I said every sinner's prayer they recited to me, I could have quoted it myself. And God said, no, no, no. And one time I was 28 uh, years old that all of a sudden he said, yes. But what was it, God? You're just torturing me for 10 years? No, I wanted it on my terms. And I didn't even realize I wanted it on my terms. I mean, I was doing everything they told me to do. But it was selfish, it was self-motivated, it was narcissistic. It was, I wanted a get-out-of-hell-free card, I wanted a genie in a bottle, a no way I wanted the Lord. And when I accepted him as who he is, because he's, he's the one that determines that, when I accepted him on his terms, like everybody else who accepts him on his terms, he was there and restored that relationship, and it's been my life changed ever since. It works exactly the same way when you strive for a deeper intimacy with him by surrendering yourself to him. That unless it's on his terms, it won't happen. There can't be a, I'll do this if you do this. I'll do this because this is going to happen. There's no, there's no bargain you make with the sovereign creator of the universe. And here's three reasons why, and I want to warn you ahead of time, most people will fail. They are surmountable reasons. You can easily work through these, but you need to understand before you go any further. The first one is this, a desire. I have to have a desire. What's the first qualification for being a pastor? Uh, husband of one wife? No, that's not the first one. Oh, uh, man without reproach? No, that's not the first one. What's the first qualification? Any man who desires the office of bishop or overseer desires a good thing. God has to place that desire in you. Works exactly the same way here. All who desire, desire to walk in Christ's shoes, desire to live godly, will pay a dear price for that desire. It's a promise because the Lord wants us to show us there is always a cost in following him. Our culture doesn't say that. The church culture doesn't, but the scripture does. There is always a cost for wanting to be the best at everything. I was telling Karen this week, you know, sometimes you get on the internet and you see something and you click Wikipedia and the next thing you know, you're um, miles away from where you want it to be and you've wasted a half hour. 
I, I saw something about Muhammad Ali, who's a big figure when I was growing up, Muhammad Ali, and, you know, died a couple of years ago. And so I, I, you know, I looked at his career and then I started looking at all the fights he had of all these people that I grew up with, Jerry Corey and uh, Joe Lewis and all those kind of people. And I was telling Karen as I, as I started at the top, as the last loss he had, and started going down the list, other than George Foreman and I think uh, Larry Holmes and some of the people he fought later in his life, almost everybody else is dead. Is dead. And most of the people, they died of drug overdose or something of that nature, but a large amount of those people died from dementia that comes from getting punched in the head so much. And I was reading about that, and it said that Muhammad Ali, from his fights and his uh, sparring sessions, was probably punched in the head 200,000 times in his career. As Rocky said, after a while, it begins to sting. You know, 200,000 times. And Karen's response was, why would he want to do that? Because he wanted to be the best. He didn't care what the cost was. You know, he didn't think how it was going to affect him later on with Parkinson's and stuff of that nature. Every time anybody makes a commitment to be the best in something, man, I'm going to be the best at school. Well, you're, going to, you're not going to go to the game on Friday. You're going to be studying. I'm going to be, the, I'm going to be the best athlete I can be. Well, you're up at 4.30 in the morning running while everybody else is sleeping. We know that in every area of our life, and yet we don't think it works the same way in the spiritual life. You have to have that desire as a deer pants for the water brook, parched, so my soul longs after you. Number two, once you have that desire, there's a cost involved. There is a terrible cost involved. And what the cost is, it means that you and maybe the people that you love are going to miss you. The greatest sacrifice you're going to make is you. If you get a chance, we looked at this last week, closing our, our message out. Look at Luke 14, you know, where it talks about sacrificing yourself. And it ends by saying, he that does not forsake all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. You can be a follower. You can be a hanger-on. You can be a groupie. But you cannot be my disciple. To show you how important this is, about what it's going to cost you and your family if you make a dogged 100% commitment to follow Christ. I want to show you Oswald Chambers' entry on my utmost for his highest that he begins the year with. I want to set the tone, he says, from the very beginning. This is what you can expect when you give your very best to the highest of all. Here's what he says. And he quotes Philippians 1.20. My earnest expectation and hope is that nothing, in nothing I shall be ashamed. We will all feel very much ashamed if we do not yield to Jesus the areas of our life he has asked us to yield to him. It's as if Paul were saying, my determined purpose is to be my utmost for his highest, my best for his glory. To reach that level of determination is a matter of the will, not of debate, not of reasoning, not of wishing so or hoping so or amen during a church service and doing whatever you want the rest of the week. It is absolute and irrevocable surrender to the will at that point. An undue amount of thought and consideration for ourselves is what keeps us from making that decision, although we cover it up with the pretense that it's others we're considering. God, I would give you everything. I would surrender everything to you. But if I do, it's going to affect my wife and my kids and the people at work and my friends and my grandkids. And so it's too much a price, God, you're asking for me to pay that other people will have to be involved with. When we think seriously about what it will cost others if we obey the call of Jesus, we tell God that he doesn't know what our obedience will mean. January 1st. Keep to the point, he does know. Shut out every other thought and keep yourself before God in this one thing only. My utmost for his highest. I am determined to be absolutely and entirely for him and him alone, not you asking him to bless you 
but him and him alone. My unstoppable determination for his holiness. Whether it means life or death, it makes no difference, Paul says. Paul was determined that nothing would stop him from doing exactly what God wanted. He had a desire and he counted the cost. But before we choose to follow God's will, a crisis must develop in our life. In my situation, it's a crisis that has been simmering for decades where I am sick. I got sick and tired of being less than I knew he wanted me to be. And when the pain of being that way gets so great, at least this is in my life, you're willing to follow through with the commitments necessary to experience him. This happens because we tend to be unresponsive to God's gentle nudges. He brings us to the place where he asks us to be our utmost for him, and we begin to debate. Then he providentially produces a crisis where we have to decide, for or against, in or out. The, that moment becomes a great crossroads in our life. As a matter of fact, every testimony I've ever read from everyone in the Philadelphia church age is where I've been choosing to read, and even during the Reformation, they all came to a point. And it was at this point that God responded. Sometimes it took them years to get there, sometimes only months. I hope for us, days or weeks. If a crisis has come to you on any front, Surrender your will to Jesus absolutely and irrevocably. There's no other course of action. Third, the lack of understanding of what this means or a theological framework to try to put this together so we can see if, if all this is possible, that we don't end up in some flaming crazy person. And we will deal with all of that in detail next week. It's amazing. It's almost like it's almost like when I first understood God's sovereignty, when I was sitting at that McDonald's so many years ago in Pasco, Washington, I read that passage in the book of Acts where it says all those that were appointed to eternal life believed, and God used that phrase, let these blinders fall from my eyes. Yes, it was a predetermined act of God. They were following through. It didn't say all those who believed were obviously ordained to eternal life. No, they only believed because of a pre-act of God. Then all of a sudden, Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 and all these passages just begin to, to come alive to me. And I, I begin to realize that God, prior to salvation, doesn't leave any of the choices up to you. Nothing. But after salvation, it's all your choice in how you're going to serve him. It's the same way here. When we start looking at the Holy Spirit, I mean, Jesus, I won't, I won't get carried away here, but Jesus, you know, is born. He's you know, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and Jesus is born and he clothes divinity with flesh and he lives for 30 years. We don't hear anything about him. We don't know anything about him. Nobody didn't do any great works. He didn't do anything at all. He was just living with this Holy Spirit in him, growing in the fear of the Lord, growing in grace. We see that glimpse in there when he's 12 years old. We know nothing about him for the next 18 years until all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Power. Gives him power, goes into the wilderness, comes back and does all these incredible things. Because when the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism, it was a baptism for service. So much so that when he goes to Nazareth, which they didn't believe his works, he opens up the book of Isaiah and begins reading. And the first passage he reads is this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me too, and he lists all these incredible things. I mean, all of a sudden, you see it everywhere in Scripture. What the Holy Spirit is designed to do for us if we just get out of the way. If you have questions, theological questions, we will talk about those next week. If, if you have questions, shoot me an email. Let me know what they are. I'll be glad to answer those. And we'll move forward with this so that we have a theological understanding, a knowledge understanding of, of what we're actually surrendering ourselves to. Because the joy is incredible. It's incontainable, and it only gets better. What you need to do is determine whether or not you're willing to receive from God all he has for you. Because it will change things. It'll change everything that you're comfortable with in your life right now. 
It'll change, um, it will change your entertainment. It'll change the way you hold your finances. It'll change when you wake up in the morning what you're going to devote your life to. Well, I have a to-do list of all the things I need to do for business. You'll find that what God wants you to do will become more pressing to you than that. I just can't imagine that exactly because you're on this side of what he wants to do with you. But we have one life to live, and it's our reasonable service to yield our bodies to him. Amen? Last thing I want to show you. This is a question that I had, a question that uh, you'll probably have. So say I wanted to do this. I don't even know what a prayer like that looks like. I mean, what do I do? Is it like, like an arrow prayer? Do I have to like be on my knees? Do I, you know, I don't even know what that means. Matter, matter of fact, I don't even know anybody who's done anything like that. So if I get myself totally to the Lord, I mean, from this day forth until he calls me home, how do I pray? I mean, what am I supposed to say? Are there other people who have prayed that that you can maybe guide me? Because when we first got saved and someone says, well, just say the sinner's prayer, we didn't even know what that meant. And someone says, here's what you need to do. You need to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. You need to ask him to forgive you of your sin, that you surrender your will to him. You believe he died on the cross, raised on the third day, seated in heaven, coming back in glory, that he is God. You ask him to, to from this day forward, rule and reign in your life. And we direct people when it comes to that. It's a way that we can kind of understand this. There's a man named Dr. Walter Wilson. Uh, he wrote an article. Uh, he was at the Keswick uh, Canadian Convention in 1935, and they asked him to share his testimony about the abundant life that he was experiencing with the Lord. I did not know, um, I did not know who he was. 20 years ago, I showed Karen 21 years ago on March 14th of the year 2000, in the Bible I had previous to this, about every 15 years I get a new Bible so I can have clear margins because my margins are pretty written in. Um, that was the Bible I had at that time. I came upon this prayer and I wrote it in the flyleaf of my Bible, exactly what I'm going to share with you today. And I didn't even know where it came from. And it wasn't until recently that I realized it was uh, Dr. Walter Wilson talking about whose body is this anyway. And it's a prayer that he prayed when he surrendered his life to the Lord. He was a medical doctor from Kansas City, wasn't a great evangelist, but just served the Lord in a powerful way by yielding to him. Here's his prayer, and I'm going to give you one of these as you leave so you can just have it with you. He says this in his words, I said to the Holy Spirit, my Lord, I have mistreated you all my Christian life. I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. When I was about to engage in some work, I beckoned you to come and help me perform my task. I have kept you in the place of a servant. I have sought to use you only as a willing servant to help me in my self-appointed chosen work. I shall do so no more. Just now I give you my body. From my head to my feet, I give it to you. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes, my lips, my brain, all that I am within and without, I hand over for you for you to live in it, live in me, the life that you please. Hardest part of this. You may send this body to Africa or lay it in a bed with cancer. Implied, I don't care. It don't belong to me anymore. You may blind the eyes or send me with your message to Tibet. I don't care. Not my body anymore. You may take this body to the Eskimos or send it to a hospital with pneumonia or COVID-19. I don't care. It is your body, Lord. You do with it what you want. It is your body from this moment on. Help yourself to it. Thank you, my Lord. I believe you accepted it. For Romans 12, 1, you said, acceptable unto God. Thank you again, my Lord, for taking me. We now belong to each other. He heard a message similar to what I just shared with you. And he went home to his house. He was with his father-in-law. and He went into his bedroom and he struggled with it all night long. Wee mornings of the hours, uh, wee hours of the morning, he got on his knees and he prayed this prayer to surrender his life to Christ. No apparition, no explosion, no speaking in tongues, no crazy whatever, just a calm assurance that God had accepted his surrender.
Very next morning, he went to work. And he says, classic example, he says when he got there in his doctor's office, these two ladies came by. They came by every month to try to sell him advertising. And so they came in there and they sit down and, and immediately his first words out of his mouth were, before we talk about advertising, is any one of you evil or bad enough that uh, you think the Lord Jesus could save you? And they kind of looked perplexed and they stumbled through a gospel presentation. Within 15 minutes, both of those young ladies received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And he reflected on that when he got home and he said, do you know why? He said, because they weren't my lips. That's exactly what the Lord wanted to do with my lips. I would have only talked about advertising. I would have only talked about business. I'd only talked about a football game or what's on television or the stuff that I want to talk about. But since I gave those lips to the Lord, look what he has done. And his life was just a picture of what God can do through a man surrendered to him. It is my prayer that as we begin this process, that you will count the cost, that you will trust the Lord, not only for your salvation, but also trust him for your sanctification in this life. And that we will experience things with him like we never had before. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and your truth. Thank you so much for showing us what's necessary to be well-pleasing to you and all the scriptures that talk about that, to be well-pleasing to you, to make it our aim, whether in the body or out of the body, to be well-pleasing to you. Lord, would you encourage us, would you give us a desire, would you let us count the cost and just trust you on the other side? And Lord, I'm praying that everyone in here, if they haven't already, will at some point in time, in the very near future, by faith, enter, in an ex enter into the great exchange where we not only ask you to redeem our spirit, which you have already done and given us the spirit as a sign of that, but redeem our soul and our minds and our personalities and our thoughts as we surrender our bodies to you. Will you do that, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.